You're listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Hello everyone, I'm Fran Barber. And I'm Kylie Crabb. And this week, uh, Kylie and I are focusing on the readings for Lent 4, and specifically 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 to 13, and John 9, verse 1 to 41, a very long very long <laughs> gospel. So, kicking off with the uh, Old Testament, with the Samuel reading, <clears throat> we have another example of God's faithfulness to God's people, uh, providing them a way out of a predicament, uh, in specifically the provision of a king and King David. This is a, a passage that has plays with notions of sight and perception, uh, which we will go into greater depth perhaps in the John conversation. Sight and perception but also um, discernment about leadership or discernment generally about the movement of God's spirit amongst us in our decision-making or our understanding of the world. Uh, so it's a very rich picking. Where would you hone in first, Kylie? Yeah, uh, I think it's a, it's a, I mean, it's a familiar story to lots of us already, right? But it's like quite quirky. You've got this kind of almost kind of comedic element to it where you've got each of the brothers being brought out to kind of put on display and stuff. And, and Samuel saying, you know, is there, is this everybody? <laughs> if you've got it's sort of like a, <laughs> is this all a, you have on the shop floor? Yes, exactly. Or can you get me one from, is there anything else out in the back kind of thing? And then they bring out this other person oh. um, who is unexpected and um, in in a range of ways, and and this turns out to be the person that um, that they're looking for. So there's got that kind of element to it, but it's also I think it's interesting uh, the unexpected nature of who turns out to be the person that the Lord is um, sort of guiding uh, Samuel to find. Um, but also I, I feel like there is something like the, worth wondering about about our own discernment in in all of this our, ourselves you know like how God is um, perhaps not so straight it doesn't feel necessarily quite so straightforward as this when we're trying to discern something no, like I think it's clear we as the readers know a lot we're a lot yeah. more confident about what's going on here than the people you know in yeah. the story itself exactly. I guess a, a good thing to point out or a useful thing perhaps is to point out uh, that Saul, whom David is replacing, mm. um, is depicted as a very manly, attractive uh, individual, you know, like a proper leader who's built and et cetera, mm. et cetera. Uh, and so that's in the background yeah. uh, of people's expectation and indeed our own probably. Yeah. It's, it's funny though, like cause there's, a, there's a, something I think that's a bit um, uh, – complex kind of fault line in the text as well because you still get to the end and even though it's this sort of unexpected child, child who's yeah. been brought out, uh, they're still ruddy and beautiful yeah. and this kind of, you know, there's still this uh, there's still this sense that this is the beginning of the great David arc, yeah, you know. Yeah, it feels a bit like the writer wants a bit both ways or, you know, perhaps knows he's supposed to be a bit deeper about it than this but on the other hand, yeah. Look, he's still beautiful. He's still beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> it's he's unexpected, still good. Yeah. but still beautiful. Yeah, still buying into some of the stereotypes. Yeah. And of course, David is going to have his own narrative arc that goes up and down a bit as well, yeah. right? So yeah. that's interesting. That I think that there is something um, about 
you know, like this kind of search for a new leader that maybe we can relate to um, and thinking about who is going to lead us through this next time um, and how we discern that. There's something I was kind of curious about in the text about, um, you know, like what is the way that we're as readers meant to see the Lord's direction for Samuel during this time? And there's the bit where, you know, they keep – bringing out um, brothers and um, this is not the right one kind of thing. Mm. But it's not clear how they kind of know that it's not the right one. But when it is the right one, the Lord speaks and says, um, oh, I need to get the right bit, arise, anoint him for this is he. But it's also not clear um, in in the Hebrew anyway who is being told this. Like is this just like a secret like whisper word into um, the ear of Samuel, Samuel yeah. or does does everybody present get to get to hear this? But then you have this um, anointing, and when this happens, the spirit of the Lord, the ruach, um, rushes in upon David, and from that day forward, um, the spirit of the Lord is on David. So, um, some kind of like I don't know. I I feel like. On the one hand, it's a really clear narrative about God directing for a very specific outcome, and maybe that feels like that would be awesome if yeah. we could all get that. But it might be like, you know, less than 1% of the time does it feel like that. But on the other hand, there is this kind of story, there is an element to it that is if you are the people around and you're just watching what Samuel's doing with the brothers and stuff and you're, you don't get the kind of voice in the ear that says this, um, then it's not until the confirmation of the rushing in of the spirit perhaps that you – that you, you see know, the yeah. full, yeah, confirmation of of this leadership because it's not like leading up in this story. It says, um, and the spirit was nowhere to be seen. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. As each of the names are read out, you know. Yes. Um, <laughs> there's no commentary on of that nature. Yes. It's actually quite um, abbreviated, and yes, you know, they brought out this one and this one and. Yes. Wasn't right. It wasn't right. It doesn't say. And the spirit was wondering. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And we're, and um, you were talking before about um, sort of perceiving and stuff. I, I was wondering about if you had reflections on that in relation to the bit right at the start of the reading about that the, the Lord doesn't look on the appearance but on the heart. Well, in verse 7, I do think that is a key uh, verse in the passage this week. And I probably mostly think that because of the John 9 reading we're going to be right. talking yeah, about yeah, yeah. shortly because there are very clear echoes and parallels. Um, but, you know, this, this passage is, is about how human physical sight yeah. is an inadequate tool to discern the move of, movement of God. Yeah. And maybe it's not just physical sight. It's actually human perception, our own ideas of what's there – put it more generally, mm. is not actually the way we discern God. And that's really annoying. Yeah. You know, we've yeah, said yeah. that. It's frustrating. It's and, not so clear. And, you know, there's no blueprint. There's no um, you know, way we can be sure yeah. a lot of the time. Sometimes, as you say, yeah, there's a, a genuine movement of the spirit and yeah. a, a sense of love or peace or such like that that occurs in in oneself or in the community yeah but often we don't know like we trust we do the best to to discern prayerfully and communally and so on yeah and then we trust yeah and 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 maybe sometimes it's um we trust and if we're like discerning faithfully along the way we see something unexpected right like that 
um, I'm just, I should correct something I said before where I said it doesn't say the Lord said to Samuel. That's later on when we're talking about the, uh, the arise, anoint him. But here in, in verse six, seven, it does say the Lord said to Samuel. But it also is like before that, he's looking at the other brothers thinking, oh, it must be among one of these. They look, you know, totally up to the job. They look awesome. And the Lord says to Samuel, no, this is not one of them because I'm looking to the heart. So he's getting getting brought up short, I guess, in what he's expected or – and I I feel myself like that is a a pretty – Familiar feeling of like, you know, needing to kind of look past your initial assumption about yeah, something. Yeah. And look, just at the at the word level, you know, yeah. the, the verb to see and appears about six or seven times, or five mm. times I think in this verse. So um, I think that's a, a bit of a flair for, yeah. for um, a focus. And, uh, you know, we've already alluded to this that, What's playing through this passage is God's very strange um, pattern of moving in the world in choosing the least likely, the weakest, the most unimpressive. And as we um, go through the Lenten season and into the Easter one, Mm. that is the path we travel following Jesus to Jerusalem, that the Messiah becomes is the one who is executed in the most shameful way, Mm. um, you know, and is... God's anointed, and that is completely contrary to yeah. the world expectations. Yeah. Of that. Very so, unexpected good news. Yeah. So, yeah, God's economy working that way here as well. So, yeah, I think the fickleness of how we see and what we miss, um, and I think in preaching I would also reflect a bit on the very – we have a very image-saturated culture that we're in now, and so I think there is something t- to be played with there about – site and what it does to us in advertising on our social media and how we perceive things. Yeah, contrasted with perceiving the heart. Contrasted with perceiving the heart, one's own and God's. Sounds good. Okay, let's move on to the gospel, which is John 9, verses 1 to 41. Well, the first thing to be said is this is a very long passage massively long. How on earth do you deal with this in a worship service, 41 verses? I'm sure people out there have got such good ideas as um, trying several voices, perhaps positioned in different places around the church. And then other ways I've seen or heard is having perhaps half of it read up to about 16 or 17 and then bringing in verses from the latter part within your sermon where yeah. we're relevant. But, yes, it's long. It's long. And I guess you could do it, – it's worth getting your head around the structure of it a bit, like being able to think of uh, – there's the bit at the start which is the initial encounter between yeah. the man and Jesus and the and the healing itself and then a whole lot of reactions to the healing from neighbours, from Pharisees, from the questions to the parents and back to the Pharisees and then a kind of final – uh, conversation between Jesus and and the man born blind. Well, no, the, the, man, the blind, the man blind. who's blind. Yeah, and I mean that description actually has in my head pictures of having a couple of people in different parts yeah. of your worship space yeah. who are in those sections. So yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting because often when we have a really long um, episode in John's Gospel, it's broken up into like loads of weeks in. Uh, in our lectionary, right, like the um, somewhat, some might say, interminable weeks of the um, feeding story in <laughs> the John mm. 6 uh, bread, uh, I am the bread of life kind of um, weeks in, in 
the lectionary. But here we get it all at once. So there is actually um, there is actually an opportunity in having it all at once. I think to treat it like that. But one of the potential um, pitfalls would be to kind of like think, oh, we already know what this story is about mm. and kind of like mm. reduce it to like yeah. a couple of points instead of reading it in detail again and wondering about a particular bit that jumps out at you. Yeah, I agree. So uh, what what would jump out at you then, Fran? Well, uh, there's lots to, <laughs> to jump lots. out here. I'm going to start at the start, how original. Yeah. I mean, what leaps out at me is that whole troubling approach to um, – our human predicament, be that um, disability or illness or, or bad fortune, that, that we might blame ourselves or others would blame us through sin for what's happened to us. So um, the first question, who sinned? Well, this person can't see, so therefore they've sinned. So um, that does leap out at me as something to be talked about. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of an interesting um, and, like, of course, a famous element of this passage, right, that you get this question, who sinned, this man or his parents? And um, and Jesus, like, just emphatically denies this yes. as a possibility. This is not about someone's sin. And actually it's kind of like a, a weird indictment of our discussion of biblical texts that, that somehow that this doesn't stick, that there is still a conversation and, about this. Oh, well, and not to mention Job and his friends yeah. getting it all wrong as yeah. well. I mean, you know. Yeah, it's so, not the only biblical uh, witness to this yeah, kind yeah. of so just bit, directly refuting it, right? Yeah, right, and it doesn't stick. So, yes, I would try to make it stick yeah. at this point. Yes. Um, and – before we get on to the very important um, conversation we need to have here about the depiction of disability here mm. in the story, I would want to. I had a really interesting session um, with our colleague Sunny Chen about um, the translation of the word sin and therefore our understanding of it. So Sunny talks about how when um, the Hebrew scripture was being translated into the Greek, into the Septuagint in about the year 250 CE, uh, BCE, um, the two Hebrew words hata and pasa were, well, the second one pasa was sort of ignored and hata, which was translated into hamata in Greek, which is missing the mark, you know, for trailing going off the path or missing the mark became the translation for sin, so doing the wrong thing, whereas pasa has the uh, sense of a broken relationship, of a covenantal breaking. It's a much more communal and sort of holistic sense of sin. And so now we have this sort of – and I'm talking about this because we are in Lent and so, you know, yeah. the question of sin or what, what it is and how we inhabit it and so on is is, is on our minds. Yeah. Um and I guess so. I'm just saying this is an an important opportunity to reset people's understanding again that it's not a moralistic thing. It's not about a list of things you've done wrong. Look, there is an element to that, but the emphasis really was lost in that translation on the broken relationship aspect of sin mm. between God and us and between us. Mm. So that's yeah. a little aside. No, it's it's good and. Um, an important part of of our whole reflection through Lent and how we think about that. that of course, having um, in this particular reading in John, we have, of course, conversation about sin and we've got this bit where um, Jesus entirely refutes this. But then people will probably remember that this story as being like having this further follow-up sentence that's completely confusing, that is then mm. saying that, you know, he's he's been 
born blind in order to... Um, let me read it properly, actually, from the NRSV. So Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. It's awful. It's awful, right? It's it mean, leads to all sorts of dreadful. And, like, what a bizarre – What um, this is? What kind of God needs to kind of create this thing in order to put on a kind of magical mystery kind of, you know um, – uh, healing event and woo you all over, which is and it's quite weird in the context of John's John, gospel, yes, where there is great skepticism about, about the people who are persuaded by signs, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So actually, one of the one of the important things which um, I've been really helped by, and I should say that I'm uh, there's a fantastic um, book called The Bible and Disability: A Commentary by, um, and it's an edited collection by Sarah Melcher, Mikhail Parsons and Amos Young. So it covers um, Old and New Testaments and it's quite um, accessible. It's not it's not a verse-by-verse commentary. It sort of looks at different stories across different sections and, and anyway, it has a wonderful section on John 9. Um, and I think if you're preaching regularly on the biblical text, it's actually a really good thing to mm. dip into um, in general and just see what people expand your horizons a bit about particular passages. One of the things that um, I've been really helped by um, the person who wrote the chapter that's about John, um, Jamie Clark Souls, points out, draws our attention to a difference between the Greek and the NRSV. So, so, so when I what I just read out about the NRSV, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. Um, she points out that there is not in the Greek there is no he was born blind. So that bit is actually just missing. Artistic license. It's artistic license. It's someone trying to fill in the gaps. And one of the things we then need to think about, they're doing it because, um, I mean, people may or may not know this, but, you know, like the biblical text that we get from manuscripts and stuff is is written with no gaps between words. It's all capital letters. There's no punctuation. So there's quite an art to discerning from this just continuous – lettering where the words start and end where the sentences do and of course people were practice how people read so people did know how to do this and could and could work it out and there's wonderful tradition of uh, text criticism doing this for our our biblical text now um, but of course it is still a, a, a question to, to work out where the punctuation goes so the translation the NRSV translation is adding in he was born blind in order to make sense of the way that the punctuation is in the Greek uh, but Jamie Clark Souls points out that if you just move where the full stop is then you would get something more like this so Jesus answered neither this man nor his parents sinned so that God's works might be revealed in him we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day Night is coming when no one can work. Completely different theology. Completely, isn't it? It's better news. It's better, it's, <laughs> it is better news. It reminds me of, um, you know, I've got the uh, 20th anniversary edition of Harold Kushner's When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And he says that um, uh, at this stage, that many years on from um, when he wrote the book, um, he has people stop him all the time and say, oh, you're that guy who wrote that book, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, right? And he says... 
no, mate, I don't know why, why bad things happen to good people. My book is when bad things happen to good people and then describes, you know, the way that God and the community of God act um, to support to support people at that point. Um, so I feel like there's something analogous yeah. going on here. Yeah. It's not trying to explain. It's not a theodicy of where did this blindness come from. He's referring. Jesus has refuted the need to ask the question in that kind of way. But then he says, given where we are, we must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. And this is so that God's works might be revealed uh, through this man. So, And I think it's really interesting. I mean, the other, I promise this is the last kind of text critical kind of little point I'll make, but it's interesting that the translations say we must work. There are some manuscripts where the scribes have um have felt that they should put it into first person singular. So say, I must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Meaning Jesus' work. Meaning Jesus, that's right. But it's actually in the plural here, which includes the man. Mm. It includes all the people who are there. And it includes, I think, us as readers, because John's gospel is very good at addressing the reader in this kind of communal mm. we uh, kind of way. So it's already pushing us to to participate in, in um, works that bring liberation. While we have the chance, I think. Mm, really important. Um, we probably need to say a couple of things about how the man, the blind man, is depicted here. You've touched yes. on it already. I mean, first reading, he does appear to be a, a prop or yes. something sort of inserted. That's all we know about him. Yes. But there is a flow to the narrative that suggests more positive spin than that. So, I mean, the most glaring to me is that. Um, the man, well, he wasn't seeking healing in the first place. Yes. So he was happy in himself, one might could yes. assume. And it definitely but, means it's not like a reward for his faith. Well, I was right? just that oh, was sorry. my next thing that I was gonna say was that um his his being made to physically see yes. was not a reward for you know, his it, it was given to him and then he he perceived Jesus and yes. appeared to him. But I don't know whether you wanted to yeah, yeah, no, no. Touch that's on I told. Of that. No, I. It's it's great. It, there's a kind of book ending right between interactions between the man and Jesus, like at the beginning here and then at the end. And there's this like a long story of things that happened to the man in between. But exactly, his declaration of faith is right near the end in like one of the last verses. Yeah, yeah and he speaks like he does speak for himself. Yes, exactly. Whereas we then are going to move into um, from the kind of. Um, healing narrative, uh, we get stuff where the the um, the neighbors are questioning him and not believing that it's him and stuff and dragging him around, uh, like you know, uh, unhelpfully, um, like they might have done unhelpfully to him when he had his visual impairment, and that's a contemporary problem as well. People just well-meaning people just kind of pulling people around instead of letting them navigate themselves. Um, so they make him passive at that point. The well-meaning-ish neighbors. They take him to Pharisees who were extremely hostile and we get this then Sabbath controversy element to it as well. Um, and and we get uh, then this interrogation of the parents. And so people who are um, – uh, you might be, have a, an oldish commentary on your shelf and if, if you do, you might find that this, um, that this passage is focused on a whole lot because people try and use it to talk about some kind of relationship between um, – early Christian kind of Jesus followers and the synagogue and try and claim that um, – give it give a really historical grounding to this fear about being thrown out of the synagogue and say that's because this was a common fear. That's, that's an older kind of scholarship, but you still hear it around now. Um, and I guess one of the cautions that I would have about that is also what it then um, – 
where the rubber really hits the road with that is how it then portrays um, the characters in John's Gospel who are known as the Jews the whole way through and being really super careful about how we use that language Um, and thinking of it, certainly I think of it as being a much more within the family intramural um, uh, relationship. So it's like the kind of... um, uh, crossness that you can have with a sibling rather than somebody who's from a different community or cultural group yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think the other conversation to be had about one of the bazillion about yes. this passage also is the, the place or the role or the depiction or the understanding of miracle. Yes. So, you know, some traditions might get caught up in whether this happened or not. I'm not interested in that. It's a very boring question. Um, it's more interesting to think about what, that this is a totally unexpected work of God, how do we respond to unexpected works of God? What is offensive to us, Mm. (laughs) you know, for God's movement? Um, I think that's sort of the key question. And what's offensive here um, is a kind of a confusing play, I think. So something this dramatic and amazing could only be done by God. I'm just getting in the head Mm. of the Pharaoh of the people. Yeah, yeah. And yet it was done on the Sabbath. Yeah. Well, that's not God would not do that, and so then we're back to sort of human perception of the way the world works, and therefore how God works. Mm. And uh, then there's a sort of a side conversation there about our understandings of our own traditions and um, how they might be in service of our discernment and relationship with God, or how much they tacked on the end, or yeah. or, or circumscribe it in a way that that traps God. Yeah. I don't know, yeah. there's a lot there, uh, but I think that they're all preaching possibilities as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's right. That um, I think there is like a million different things that you could preach on this passage and it's, as we said, really long, so you can find all different uh, controversies or points of tension within it. Um, one of the things that I would caution against preaching on is the the passage actually kind of pushes us, in fact, some in to a certain extent, to sort of using some of these ideas as metaphors, mm. like using um, using blindness as a metaphor, just as it's using dark and light as a metaphor, and and we know that that is um, for for people who. Um, who come to worship with a visual impairment, this is like a really awful thing to be, but it is also super reductive for all of us uh, as we think about all the different limitations on our human capacities that we all bring. Uh, There's actually not this big, really strong division between people with a disability and those without it. In fact, all this literature talks about um, people, the temporarily able-bodied people, um, and I think that that's a helpful way for us yeah, to think of ourselves. Is, yeah. yeah, But we might also think about the, um, the other limitations that we bring and to think of the kind of liberation that we are all seeking that might be well beyond some of um, any of these kind of assumptions of our distinctions. So one, one of the critiques that you get from disability um, readers of, of this passage is to say the, the other thing you don't want to do is to just um, completely obscure the, the, 
the discussion of impairment and disability here by making everything into a metaphor and doing it, you know, in like you said at the beginning, Fran, about how he at first blush looks like a prop in the story, making it um, just all in the service of a story about how great Jesus is rather than this man who we get to know over 41 verses and who speaks for himself and declares his faith by the end of it. Um, so so just thinking about, about that. And I think also that he participates in the – the transforming work that is part of what is going on here. Mm. I mean, like all these stories, we we do need to wind it up, but sort of where do we place ourselves in this story of the miracle of sight, of the perception of God and, you know, I don't know. It's about us putting our own rigid parameters aside, but it's it's also about, um, I don't know, um, being, be, yeah, being open to God's sight. Yeah. I don't know what I'm trying to say there. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's um, just allowing people to to be complicated, wonderful children of God who are all, you know. The, who, the, who then, sorry, who then reflect God's face to the world. Exactly, yeah. There's, there's a, um, a, a fantastic document that the World Council of Churches has put together reflecting on, uh, the, it's called The Gift of Being, and it um, uh, works with a whole lot of people with lived experience of disability, and it includes um, things that are just a really helpful reminder, I think, about the diversity of experience that people have of disability. So it has examples of people who say, like, it's ridiculous to think that my impairment is the thing that is the most important thing to me that I would like to change like you know there's you know you might have all the same you know the the, the most yeah foibles you know self-doubt or other you know regular kind of tensions in a relationship or whatever that might be actually the thing that is the most difficult thing um but on the other hand it also has people who speak from experience saying actually my my disability really is quite restrictive for me and I do resent it and I and I would love to be released from it so there's not really um we we can't just like sort of give one line on disability and think that we're covering everybody's experience obviously disability itself is very diverse but people's experience of it is as well so um I would actually encourage people also to look into that world council of churches document actually which we will put in the show notes we will thank you Kylie By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.